Now, as Chris has mentioned, the uh, group of elders who form uh, at the moment our our pulpit committee uh, decided that there should be an Advent series beginning today. And uh, obviously when they drew lots, their lot apparently fell on me. And we're going to begin that series by turning to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 1. And during the course of the next few weeks, we'll be focusing attention on Matthew chapters 1 and 2. When we do that, it's very tempting, I think, to begin at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. But Matthew began at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. And that's where we're going to begin today. So let's hear God's word from Matthew chapter 1 and verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Isaiah. And Isaiah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. 
We all probably enjoy different kinds of reading and different kinds of books. Apart from enjoying murder mysteries, my favorite nonfiction reading is historical biographies. And I have to confess that there is always one thing that really turns me off when I open a biography, and that is if the first chapter is about the family tree and you find that there's page after page of relations and connections tracing the individual's greatness or nefariousness back way, perhaps even for centuries. And I have to confess, being a somewhat impatient person, I usually lay those biographies down because I don't like biographies that begin with family trees. So why does Matthew irritate some of us by beginning with a family tree? Why does he not, like the other gospel writers, start somewhere else? Why does he do this when it isn't actually necessary? Luke has a genealogy of Jesus, but isn't he wise to reserve it for chapter 3 when Jesus is already 30 years old? But when you think about it that way, if it wasn't necessary for Matthew to begin his gospel with Jesus' genealogy, he must have wanted to make a point by doing it. And in actual fact, it seems as you read through these names and at least recognize some of them, you immediately see that he really wants to make several points. Some of them are big points and some of them are small points. But this is a passage that is chock-a-block with significance. And I want us this morning as we begin our Advent series to draw out three of these points. Uh, I've called them the starting point, the sticking points, and the main point. The starting point, the sticking points, and the main point. So what is the starting point? Well, the starting point of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy, and probably one of the reasons that made that more acceptable to his contemporaries as a way of introducing the Lord Jesus Christ is because Matthew was probably writing largely for Jews. And if you know the Old Testament, if you know something about Judaism, you know how important genealogies have been in Jewish history. And so what to me may seem to be a turn-off actually to Matthew's first hearers, and most of the people who received Matthew's gospel heard it rather than read it, this genealogy was full of interest. Not least because it went right back to Abraham. Amazingly, Matthew is able to trace the Lord Jesus right back to Abraham. And of course, the reason that is so important is, as the passages that Chris read for us earlier on in the service make abundantly clear, Abraham 
was the man to whom God gave this special promise that in his seed the nations of the world would be blessed. And if we had read on in Genesis 15, the second reading uh, earlier on in the service, we would have come to that great occasion when Abraham had this dramatic experience in the darkness of seeing animals cut in two and placed in parallel lines and this ethereal light uh, transversing its way through the parallel lights as a symbol to Abraham, as a, a covenant seal and pledge to Abraham, that if God, who is himself light, failed to keep his covenant promise, then let God himself be similarly dismembered. In other words, in Abraham, God pledged his very existence to sending someone who would be his seed, in whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, it's just possible that Matthew already knew Paul's letter to the Galatians, which was written before Matthew's gospel was, and shared the insight that Paul has when he says about those passages, don't you see that God's promise was not just about seeds, about offsprings. It was about one seed, about one offspring who would come, in whom the blessing promised to the nations would be fulfilled. But as he says in Galatians 3, 13 to 16, it would be fulfilled by the one who fulfilled it becoming a curse in order that the blessing that God promised through Abraham to the nations would come in superabundance. And this is why Matthew is tracing Jesus' lineage, Jesus' family tree, right back to Abraham, because what he's saying to us in this long list of names is that through the meanderings and challenges of history, God has been keeping his longest standing promise. And indeed, because of course Matthew is writing after the death of Christ, after his resurrection, after his ascension, he understands that this is not only God's longest kept promise, but it's the promise that has proved most difficult to keep because it's involved the sacrifice of his son, the atonement made by him on the cross of Calvary. And so, in a sense, Matthew's starting point is to say to us, don't you see how God keeps his promises? Don't you see how now looking backwards, looking backwards, we're able to see the way in which as we, as we trace the dots through these almost 2,000 years of history, in the midst of all the difficulties, in the midst of all the difficult people, God for 2,000 years has kept his promise. 
But, you know, I said that, that Matthew traces Jesus back to Abraham. But that's not strictly speaking true, is it? He actually traces Jesus forwards from Abraham. In Luke's family tree, he traces back from Jesus. And he has a reason for doing it. But Matthew traces forwards from Jesus because he also has a reason for doing it. And the reason for doing it is that God has had this in view ever since the beginning. That even although there were times when it seemed to God's people, as we read and sometimes sing from the Psalms, that God's promise had fallen derelict, right at the beginning, Abraham himself believed that. But right from the beginning, God has known where he has been going. He has never missed a beat. He has never been slow. He has never been late. And there's an obvious application of that to Matthew's first hearers and to us, isn't there? That if this was true throughout almost 2,000 years of the history of this promise, then we can be sure that through the threescore years and ten or whatever more of our lives, God will be faithful to his promise. Even though we are in the dark, even though like Abraham we're saying, what about your promise? Or like the psalmist looking at everything having crumbled into dust in their lives, where is the promise of God? And Matthew is telling us that Now in Jesus Christ, we have the final proof that God's promises are always true and reliable. Remember how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1? He says, every single promise of God finds its yes in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we understand that when we have found him, when we belong to him, when we are in him, we can share the same confidence. So this is Matthew's starting point. But as we read through these verses, I'm fairly sure you would have noticed that Matthew also includes what I've called some sticking points. Sticking points. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are places in this family tree where you're kind of meant to feel a jolt. So, well, what's that doing here? I want to point out two of them. The first um, is, is really obvious, isn't it? It's the into this family tree of Jesus, unlike Luke, Matthew introduces four women before the Virgin Mary. And these four women appear to have something in common, not just that they are women, but the kind of women they are. For one thing, they all seem to be Gentiles. They all seem to have come from a pagan background. Tamar, 
uh, who's mentioned in Genesis 38, Rahab, who's uh, lived in Jericho, Ruth, who was a Moabitess, and that's something that's emphasized again and again and again in the book of Ruth, and a woman he doesn't even name, but whose name we all recognize, Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And whatever our own background, by marrying into Uriah's family tree, you remember how Uriah is always described. Uriah the Hittite. And writing to people with a Jewish background, it, it is, it's kind of amazing that Matthew says, look what is in Jesus' background. Look what's in his genealogy. Strangers to the covenants of God, Gentiles, pagans, dogs, outsiders. And not only outsiders, but the other thing that may strike you about these women is they've all got a kind of asterisk at their names. Uh, the, the, the story of Tamar is almost unreadable in church. It's one of the most ghastly, disgusting stories in the pages of the Old Testament. She, she, she played the part of a prostitute and bore twin sons to her derelict father-in-law, Judah. And she's there in, in Jesus' genealogy. And Rahab, the prostitute, the, the keeper of a, an inn of ill repute. And even Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. And, and the, the Mosaic law exiled Moabites and their, their offspring forever from the people of God. And Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who committed adultery with David. You know, if it were me, and I was talking to people about Jesus, I think I might have hidden these things. I had a wonderful experience some time ago. I have a, a, a wonderful friend who invited me and a, a number of us to have lunch at the Carrollton Club in London. And the Carrollton Club, as you know, is one of those clubs to which you belong if you belong to a certain political stripe. And it is, it's an amazing place. And of course, it's full of all these wonderful portraits of the, the people who have been members from, you know, from way back when. And I, I said... <laughs> meaning it to be a joke to my friend. I, I, I said, I suppose you're, you're related to some of these fellows. And he said very quietly, but with tremendous satisfaction, yes, he said, William Pitt. William Pitt. You know, I didn't think of saying to him, you know, my grandfather was a dry stone diker in Caithness. I thought this is this is a time to, you know, not to mention my ordinariness to him in the 
by comparison with, with this genealogy. And yet, Matthew, he goes out of his way to do it. I say he goes out of his way to do it for the simple reason that Luke doesn't do that. So he must be making a point. And what's the point? Um, well, obviously the point is that the Lord Jesus, when he, when he comes into the world, is not ashamed to come into a family that has this in its history. I mean, by way of application, it, 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 that says something to us, doesn't it? To, to those of us who may have things in our family history, we wouldn't dream of making public or, or in some instances even telling other people that we understand that the Savior who came into the world came into our world, um, into, into this kind of world, with all, with all its shame and with all its sin. It's a genealogy that has skeletons that are brought out of the cupboard. And we, too, we have skeletons that are in the cupboard, in the cupboard of our, our family story, of our personal story. And what Matthew is saying is, don't you see already in the Old Testament scriptures in the purposes of God, he brings in the outsiders and he brings into his purposes and his love even our failures. That he, he is able to he is able, in a way we can never understand, to weave into the tapestry of his purposes even the disasters of his own people. Of course, Jesus himself would be the great example of that, wouldn't he? As Peter saw as he preached on the day of Pentecost, he was, he was crucified at the hands of Wicked men, you crucified him. And yet all this was in accordance with the foreordained purposes of God. And here it's already there like a shadow in, in Jesus' own history. So that's a sticking point. It's quite a big sticking point, isn't it? But there's another sticking point. Actually, almost a shattering point. And it's right at the end of the genealogy. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. You see how this breaks the system? Father begets son in the old language, son begets son, begets son, begets son, begets son. But here Matthew is saying that Joseph didn't beget Jesus. He adopted Jesus. And that's actually made clear in, later on in the chapter. When he names Jesus, that was how you went about adopting Jesus. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. He was the, he was the man who adopted Jesus. And yet perhaps that's not really the best way to put it. 
Because at the end of the day, it wasn't that Joseph adopted Jesus, was it? It was that Jesus adopted Joseph. Joseph, yes, he did adopt Jesus. But it was only because Jesus had already adopted him and taken him into his purposes to use him for his glory. And so in these marvelous ways, there's in, in the shading and the color of this marvelous tapestry of generations leading to the Lord Jesus Christ, there are, as I say, these sticking points, but these sticking points get us to the very heart of the gospel. Because the heart of the gospel is itself for so many people, was also for so many of us, the great sticking point that what we needed was someone to invade our lives who would take our shame and then our sin and then adopt us into his family. And perhaps that's, ex perhaps that's exactly how you experienced it. You thought you were adopting Jesus. And then perhaps slowly it dawned on you that you received Jesus only because, first of all, Jesus received you. So there's a starting point, there are sticking points, and then there's the main point. And if you stand back from Matthew 1, 1 through 17, I think you'll immediately see it. You, you actually, you can't miss it, and, and not only can't you miss it, but but thankfully, Matthew tells you what it is. And the main point, when you, look, when you stand back from the picture and look at it, what, what do you see? You see that the genealogy of Jesus is very neatly grouped in three groups of 14 generations. So, from Abraham... Right down to David, there are 14 generations. From David to the exile in Babylon, there are 14 generations. From the exile in Babylon to the Lord Jesus, there are 14 generations. And if we had missed it, Matthew says, you notice in verse 17, by the way, did you notice that the way I've arranged this, all the generations from Abram to David, 14 from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, all you need to do is to consult Luke's genealogy of Jesus, quite apart from Old Testament genealogies, and you realize Matthew's missing some people out. In other words, he's not just recording history here. He has done this to send a message to us, 14, 14, and 14. There were more than 14, 14, and 14. So, Matthew, what are you doing? What are you trying to say to us? What's the explanation? Well, we wish we knew, don't we? 
One very attractive explanation, at least I find it attractive, is this. Um, you know, it's amazing the number of great mathematicians who, and scientists who have been Jewish, isn't it? Um, there seems to be a kind of an instinct for, for number and categorization. And that goes right back way beyond Matthew's own day. Um, and, and you see it actually in antiquity generally. The, the relationship between letters of the alphabet and numbers. So that numbers could, could stand for people. I mean, the most famous illustration of that in, in probably in the whole Bible is 666, which John tells us, in, isn't it, Revelation 13, is the number of a man. And of course, people have been trying to guess who this 666 is ever since John had that vision in the book of Revelation. And we're familiar with this too. I mean, nowadays, for example, in football teams, the name of the player is on the back. You know, in, in the day of all of us who are old age pensioners, it was just the number. So if mum said she'd buy you a soccer jersey for Partick Thistle or Rangers or Dundee United, you'd say, get me number seven. Because number seven identified the name of your particular hero. I think perhaps even in Dundee there may have been a time, as there is today in Liverpool, when a little boy might say, just get me number 26. Which for those of you who were never Dundee United supporters or are not currently Liverpool supporters, is the number on the jersey that Andy Robertson the Liverpool left back and Scottish captain wears. Even his charity is called 26. So if you, if you know the lingo, so what about these 14s? Well, 14 to a Jew was whose number? Give you a clue. When you write his name in Hebrew, there are three consonants. The vowels don't appear. The beginning and end consonant are the same. So you can read it backwards as Hebrew is written, or you could actually read it forwards. And the two letters at the end are the same. D, which is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Vav or Wow, which is the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So we've got four and six and four. And in Old Testament arithmetic as well as New Testament arithmetic, 14 was David's number. So it's possible, it's possible that this, this little trigger that Matthew seems to be using is like music playing in the, in the background somewhere that says, David, David, 
David. And this, of course, is how he works this genealogy. It goes, it goes, as it were, up and up and up, yes, with some bumps in the road, until it comes to great King David. And then it goes down to the deportation. And actually, in Matthew's story, it goes right down to who. Who is the king of the Jews when Jesus was born? Well, he's not even a true Jew. He's an Idumean, Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the tyrant. Herod the Great, the vassal king of Rome. And Herod the Great, the hater and want-to-be destroyer of God's Messiah King. And you see what, what Matthew might be saying here? Well, he's saying this whether, whether the numerics are the case or not. He emphasizes it, doesn't he? In verse 1, he's the son of David. When the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, he emphasizes Joseph, son of David. See what Matthew is saying? It's like, it's actually, it's, actually, it's actually like some great movie in which the hero figure has been in quest of a royal line. And at the, the end of the movie, he at last finds the rightful heir. And Matthew is saying right at the beginning, think of this if he's writing for Jews, saying right at the beginning, we found him. I know who he is. Let me tell you all about him. And yet the utterly amazing thing is uh, who he is and where he is. Uh, where this royal line has ended up. Remember David's last words in Second Samuel 23? God's covenant is secure with me. His promise to me is sure. And from that point onwards, it looked as though God's covenant promise had fallen to the ground. And Matthew is saying, no, no. It fell and fell and fell and fell, but I found it. And where I found it was in the home of a woodworker from Nazareth and a teenage girl into whom the son she bore came, who was the true king, the Christ, the Messiah. You see what it's saying? It's saying this king is utterly different from all the other rulers of the world. And he contrasts Herod, doesn't he, very deliberately. And this king is for outsiders. And he'll soon be bringing wise men from the east. And the whole of his gospel, which in a sense is the gospel of the king and his kingdom, tells us that this king brings in his kingdom in a radically different way. Uh, he proclaims that he is king right at the beginning of his ministry. But the way he shows the power of his kingdom is by the restoration of those whose lives have been broken, by the dispelling of the deception that their minds have been marked by and eventually by going to the place, the one place in the whole of his life history 
where anyone would write over him, Jesus of Nazareth, the King. The cross on which he would eventually die. Only then, as Matthew tells us, by his death and resurrection through the forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life to establish his kingdom forever. So that the last words, if these are the first words, then the last words of Matthew's gospel are also about the king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all the nations. Bring them in, bring them in. Crucified in weakness, he rises to reign. He becomes one of us into the story of our lives, into our fallenness. He comes, not himself to be fallen, but to adopt us, to bear all the responsibilities of our fallenness and sin in order to give to us all the privileges of being adopted by him into his family. And Matthew is saying, every single page since Genesis 1 in your Bibles has been leading there. So come, this is what he's, this is what he's beginning to prepare us for. See that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So when you come to Jesus Christ, God's promises will be kept for you too. And rejoice that he has come to save sinners and to adopt us into his family. And rejoice that he is the king. And bow down and worship him so that the story of the genealogy is really the story of the gospel. What a story. What a saviour. What a faithful God. Oh, let's come to him, trust him, love him, and worship him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of the gospel. We thank you that it is written into every page of our New Testaments. Thank you. We thank you even that in your providence in most of our Bibles there's a blank page before the New Testament begins. That when we turn it over, knowing that the story of the old remains a mystery, yet unfinished, your great unfinished symphony. And yet as soon as we turn the blank page, we encounter Jesus Christ. And we know that the last movement has begun. And we pray that you will sweep us up, catch us up into its music until the day of the great crescendo and finale when he who was born in humility appears in majesty and glory. And just as Matthew said to his generation, I have found the king the Savior. We pray for grace to say to our own generation, we too have found the King. 
He has become our Savior. We want to invite you to come to him too. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus, our Savior's sake.